my husband. Can you guys hear me okay? No? Let me talk a little louder. They can turn me up. Is that okay? We'll get it. Okay, I'll put it a little bit higher. We'll be this. Okay, so my husband taught a sermon once at a church we were attending, and uh, they had one of these on stage. Uh huh, you see where this is going? So he steps up on stage and he's nervous. We were like 20 years old. We were like just married and we were living in Canada. And he gets up on stage, it's a whole auditorium of people, sets his laptop up on one of these and just like crashes. Just like the whole, it echoes through the auditorium to set the stage for his, for his time. It ended up being great, it was a beautiful day. But when I saw it, this is all that I had for my laptop this morning. I'm like, mm, are we sure we're gonna start the day? <clears throat> um, so as Priscilla said, um, my name is Chelsea. Creekside for about a year, um, and I do some of the stuff on Sundays at the end of sermon and reflection time, which I really enjoy. Um, and I find that a lot easier because the lights are off and people's eyes are closed. It's not really, yeah. I don't, I don't feel like the attention's on me, so this is a little bit more challenging for me. So, bear with me. Um, I'm just going to get into it. I don't want to take up like too much time here. I want to make sure that we have a lot of time to discuss our questions and enjoy one another and, and fellowship. Um, <clears throat> so when it comes to a story like this one in Genesis 3, which is what we're talking about this morning, the fall, I think that we might find ourselves in a few different camps. Um, there are a lot of people who would read this passage and, you know, without really understanding the form of literature or the intent of the passage, they would scoff that maybe someone would suggest that this story could describe our origin story, that it could diagnose what's gone wrong with humanity. I mean, we are talking about magic trees and talking serpents. Um, I think that there are a whole bunch of church folks um, whose relationship to this story never really evolved beyond, you know, what they learned on a felt board in Sunday school. Um, and if you don't know what I'm talking about or what a felt board is, don't worry. <laughs> you didn't miss too much. Um, but regardless of, you know, where you're We good? Okay. I'll try to stay very still. I think that might be what I need to do. Um, so regardless of your relationship with this story, I truly believe that if we give it the time and the meditation that it deserves, um, we'll sense that there is something truly compelling and beautiful and hauntingly true um, about what's being taught to us, about the human experience, about the nature of sin, and most importantly, about the heart of God. So, this morning, I'm going to invite you guys to join me as we try to move past maybe the felt board uh, characters that some of us have of Adam and Eve in our minds, and invite the Holy Spirit to help us see this narrative with new eyes, with fresh eyes. So, will you guys join me in prayer? Father, we are here for you. Ultimately, the songs we sung this morning have been um, prayers of desire for you, to hear from you, to experience you, to meet with you, to be transformed by you, to be transformed by the love that you have freely given us in Christ. So this morning, as we come 
to this text as we come um, really before your feet. We're asking um, in humility, um, according to our own limitations, that you would meet us, that you would speak to us, that you and your kindness and your goodness would reveal to us more of your heart. Uh, you would reveal to us um, more of your, your purposes uh, for the work that you want to do in and through us and in and through our lives. So we love you, Lord, and we commit this time to you, and we pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I am going to read through Genesis 3. Um, it's, you know, there, there are way worse passages of Scripture to have to sit through, so this is going to be a good one. I'll just read through the whole chapter. Um, it's about 20 verses. Here we go. Starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you'll die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good, knowing evil. So when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, well, the woman with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. I'll crush your head and you'll strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return." Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The last four verses here. The Lord gave, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. 
So that was a lot. Um, what is going on here? You know, I believe just like in many parts of scripture, there are a ton of applications that can be made through this narrative. Um, however, I think if we were to boil it down to its essence, the story of the fall is our story. It's the story of humanity. It's the story of our magnetic propensity to question and ultimately deny what God has established to be good and instead take hold of what we have decided for ourselves is good. As the lyrics in the old hymn, Come Thou Fount, so elegantly put it, which I'm sure we're all familiar with, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God that I love. So looking at Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6, just the first part of the passage that we just read, um, it introduces the snake as shrewd, as a word that I think we're really familiar with um, in our current vocabulary, but essentially that means one who is able to use their knowledge for good or for terrible ends. So this was a, a, a wise creature. Um, <clears throat> earlier in the Genesis narrative, God instructed humanity to rule over the animals on earth. So almost immediately, we see right out the gate, animals are exercising rule over the humans. You know, the man and woman are already kind of failing in, their, in, in the mission that they've been given. Um, and so there's an exercising of rule over the humans, which is an inversion of God's initial command for what was good. And ultimately, the serpent inverts the words of God. So the woman sees, she desires, and she takes from the tree of knowing good and evil, um, despite what God has said is good and right and beautiful for her. These moments of testing in the Bible, um, it's something that we see throughout all of scripture, um, but it's often a choice. You know, God's people are given a choice between something that is good, ultimately what God has determined to be good, and something that seems good. Um, Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. It appears here in the chapter that, you know, I, I think Adam and Eve, they rightfully so, get a very bad rep. But it appears in scripture, if you're really reading what goes on here, that the woman doesn't necessarily seek to disobey God. Um, rather, she sees the tree and she sees that it looks good it looks like a delight, and it's to be desired to make one wise. And although God says that the tree will lead to death, to the woman it looks like it might give more or even better life than she has. So she ate it. And for the first time in scripture here, we see what is, what is the heart of sin? The heart of sin is making ourselves the ultimate reference point in all of the universe. C.S. Lewis compared this idea to the sin of pride. He says, Pride, on the other hand, is the mother of all sins, in the original sin of Lucifer. Like an instrument strung, but preferring to play itself, because it thinks it knows the tune better than the musician. I thought that was a really beautiful word picture there. Um, us really believing that we, we know better but we're just in the instrument. What are we going to do without someone who knows how to play us? The dark moment, this dark moment in the garden is kind of the first of many dominoes to fall. If you were here the first week when we watched a Bible Project video, 
um, it kind of really beautifully illustrated what came after this moment. You know, there's Cain and Abel and everyone after him who kind of repeated this choice of denying what God has said to be good and then grasping and taking what was not theirs to have, which ultimately led um, to their own brokenness and angst and shame. We're going to look back a little bit at Genesis 2 here, um, verses 15 through 17. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So right here in Genesis 2, um, God states that on the day humans eat of this tree of knowing good and evil, they will experience death. But as we just read in chapter 3, you know, after Eve takes a bite of the fruit, she's still alive and well enough to offer some to her husband. Um, so, therefore, we understand the biblical definition of death is much broader than just physical death. When we read, you know, what we just read in, in chapter 2, which kind of like, imagine she's just going to keel over as soon as she took a bite of the apple, just like Snow White or whoever. Um, but in the case of Adam and Eve, this form of death initially involved an exiled existence away from the presence and relationship with the God they were made for, which was a form of death. And the tree of life, which was also a form of death. And although this exile did ultimately lead to physical death, it also involved all of the sin and all of the brokenness that they would experience outside of the garden. Um, to quote one of my favorite authors, David Benner, he says, Liberty was instantly replaced by bondage. Intimacy by alienation. Genuine love was reduced to self-love. And the result was egocentricity, estrangement from our deepest self, from God, and from other people. Which I think is worse than death, yeah. <laughs> to be honest. It's like, that's death. Um, so looking back, we're just going to look now at, at verses 7 through 13 to see how this consequence of sin played out. So Eve has taken the apple. She's offered it to Adam. What are the consequences of this death? What do we see here, starting in verse 7? says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife, they heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cold of the day, but they hid from the Lord God among the trees. The Lord God called to them, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So throughout these verses, um, we're going to break them down, but we begin to see the consequence of sin, which is us choosing what seems good um, despite what God has established to truly be good. Um, which results in a severing of our relationship first to God, then to ourselves, and to one another. So looking at verse 10, verse 10 is the example that we're looking at to see how the broken relationship with God played out. So we see here where friendship and joy was shared between man and God, 
which was characterized by the taking of walks in the cool of the day. Um, and I think it's worth noting the word walking in Hebrew um, is actually an idiom that meant friendship, relationship. It's kind of a, a symbol of, of doing life together. Um, there's examples of that like with David and Solomon. Um, they talked about them walking together. That was characterized by deep friendship. So now we're finding Adam and Eve where they once had deep communion and relationship and a doing of life together with, with their God, with Yahweh. They're now cowering, they're hiding when they're when be, being given the opportunity to actually be with him, to actually enjoy him um, as their friend and creator and sustainer and provider. So the fact that, that God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of day meant that he was coming. He was, he was wanting friendship, seeking relationship, you know, even after what they had done. Like, they were, he knew, of course he knew, um, but they hid. So ultimately we see that sin is running from a God who wants a relationship with us. But why don't we want a relationship with him? You know, I think that's an important question to ask. Why are they running? Why are they hiding? They've only known God to, to be a source of love and care and companionship. So I believe, you know, the answer is complex, like most answers to big questions. Um, but putting it simply, being in sin now means that our lives are about power and they're about self-preservation. Um, it looks like saying, you know, okay, God, I'll have a relationship with you as long as it doesn't really get in the way of my needs as long as it doesn't get in the way of what I've determined to define happiness, what I've determined to define fulfillment um, for myself. Um, I think maybe the reason why we kick against having a relationship with God is that we don't like covenant. Um, you know, that's, that means where you're committed to a, a person regardless of what you're getting out of it. We hate that. Covenant, it completely kicks against the grain of our heart because sin now, um, it's convinced us that we need to keep control. We need to keep power. Um, there's no way, you know, for a finite being to actually walk with an infinite being without losing control. Um, so we don't have it. So first, our relationship with God is destroyed. Um, and then we see that our relationship to ourselves is destroyed. Um, we also see this in verse 10 where Adam says his response to God when God's reaching out, like, hey, where are you? Like, I want to be with you. Um, he says, I heard you, but I was afraid. Um, I was naked, so I hid. So this is walking in Hebrew, insinuated kind of a greater meaning. The word nakedness in Hebrew is an idiom for a sense of guilt, shame, and wrongness um, that needs to prove itself. So it's like there's kind of a lot packed into that word. Um, Essentially, it's a need to keep people from seeing who you really are. Um, Timothy Keller puts it this way. The term Hebrew, in Hebrew, nakedness, is a kind of psychological dislocation. So it's, it's a lack of ease with who you are. Um, so it's, it's, it's a complex idea, but I think you guys can understand. We've all sensed this kind of like disassociation with like, who, I, who am I truly? Um, so it means we don't really want to admit the worst about ourselves, so we don't, you know? We instead, sin kind of forces us to live in this sense of denial about our dependence on God um, and the actual depth of our need, which leaves us with a sense of guilt and inability to reconcile our own sense of peace. So 
Our relationship with God has been severed. Our relationship to ourselves has been severed. And thirdly, our relationship to others has been severed. So we see this um, in verse 12, where there's the making of fig leaves uh, to cover their nakedness from each other. Um, and then in verse 7, where Adam just straight up throws his wife under the bus. <laughs> like, just take her. You know, like, I don't, I don't want this anymore. I don't want her anymore. Like, she did this um, before God. Like, just take her. Where freedom, joy, and mutual submission was once shared between Adam and Eve, now we're seeing fear, again, self-preservation, um, the desire to bulldoze other people for the purpose of self-exaltation, you know? Um, and in addition, we can't bear to have other people truly know who we are. We have to control what other people see about us, and we so deeply fear the outcome if we can't control the narrative, if we can't control people's, people's perceptions, you know? Um, our relationships are now power relationships. They can no longer be defined by love and service. That's what sin does. We see this play out, obviously, between individuals, you know, on an individual basis, where there's superficial relationships, there's exploitative, exploitative relationships, there's abusive relationships. Um, we also see it corporately, you know, with races don't get along with each other, genders don't get along with each other, governments don't get along with each other. So sin has severed our relationship to God, to our own selves, and to the people around us, which is that, like, kind of umbrella definition of death that God warned Adam and Eve about. So that was, that's a lot of heavy stuff, <laughs> for sure. Um, but this is where it gets really, really beautiful because we see God's response to humanity's greatest failure, uh, to trust him and to enjoy what he has determined to be good. This is where we see the glorious and gracious heart of God on display for us. So I'll break these down in like, kind of four quick bullet points, and then I'll, I'll describe them for us. So in verse 8, God comes and calls. That's where he says, you know, where are you? I think a lot of us in church, if we've heard the story a lot, it's kind of our tendency, maybe because it's just like, we expect, again, we expect fear, like we expect to feel fear when God calls for us. Um, <clears throat> and I think maybe, you know, we've heard people read it to us this way, but when you read that, where are you? I know growing up, I kind of read that as like, where are you? You know, like, where are you going to come? Um, but it's just like, no, it's a, it's a like, where are you? Like, I'm here to be with you. I'm here to enjoy you. I'm here to just like do what we always do. And um, yes, exactly. And in verse nine, God invites. So he invites confession. So he comes, he comes and calls. He invites confession. And then in verse 15, God promises the coming of a savior who will at his own expense eradicate evil. And then lastly, in verse 21, God provides. He provides the covering for their nakedness. So you can already see, it's just like, just grace filled. Like just, yeah, in the midst of their darkest moment, their creator, provider, God comes and says, I still want to be with you. Like I'm still, you've, you've done as much as you could to not be with me, but I'm going to do as much as I can to be with you. So let's take a little deeper look at these examples. Um, like I said, just look at the 
mercy of God's heart. He comes in, he doesn't smite them. He says, where are you? You know, what have you done? Have you done what I've asked you not to do? Um, and I think it's important to ask, like, what does God want with those questions? God's not seeking truth and illumination for himself. He already knows. Um, he knows the answer. So the only reason why God would be asking these questions is if he's trying to give them the opportunity to receive truth and illumination for themselves. He's treating them as adults. He's not treating them as objects. He's not even treating them as animals or children. He's doing what people in AA call intervention. You know, he's, he's trying to get them to tell him what they should know. Admit what you've done. Say who you are. Own it. Take responsibility. You know, he's counseling them. He's, he's seeking them in love, and he's asking questions instead of just telling them what they've done wrong. Um, he's so gentle in the way that he seeks to change their hearts. Secondly, we see the mercy of his hand. Um, the second thing he does here is he, he makes garments for them. They had sewed these like itchy, terrible fig leaves all over themselves. Um, but when God makes garments for them, he makes them out of animal skins, knowing now that they need them psychologically for privacy and also practicality because they're going to be living in a much more hostile world than they were used to in the garden. Um, he provides something better for them than they could even provide for themselves. And thirdly, God promises a coming savior. You know, he knew that the only true and holistic solution to freeing them from their, this bent towards self and relational destruction, towards fear, towards shame, was a perfect self-giving and self-sacrificing love. And more than that, an initiating love, you know, which came almost immediately here in the, in the passage in the person of Yahweh, and then ultimately for all of mankind in the death and the resurrection and the life of the promised Savior Jesus. And again, to quote David Benner, he puts it so beautifully when he says, creation was an outpouring of love, an overflow of love from heaven to earth. He's kind of referring to the Trinity, this, com this loving community that they were living in. Um, creation declared that humans are born of love and they're born for love, created in the image of God who is love. Love is our source and love is to be our fulfillment. To close here, um, Timothy Keller also says, to be a Christian means to say, Father, cover my sins because of what Jesus Christ has done. Objectively cover it by pardoning my sin, but subjectively deal with the sin in my heart. I don't feel loved. I don't live loved. I'm trying to prove myself. I'm trying to get control. So let the love of what Jesus Christ did for me so flood my heart by the Holy Spirit that I can truly begin to love and serve people. Heller always says it better than anyone else. I'm going to close this in prayer if you want to join me. Um, as we ourselves a minute here um, before the Lord to be quiet and to really consider this love, to really consider the love that's been extended 
to, to us this morning through this passage and then through the experience of your own life. Um, invite the Holy Spirit to illuminate those places of grace. Um, and then I'll close this in prayer in just a minute. Father, it is overwhelming to consider the fact that you are pleased to dwell with us. I thank you that in this room you see every need, you see every heart, you see um, every concern, every fear, every doubt. And you are so pleased to dwell in that space with us. Not always providing us answers, but always providing us yourself. So we ask this morning, Lord, that you would help us to reciprocate that desire, Lord, that as we get a glimpse into the depth of 
the reality of, of what you've done for us in Jesus, the way that you have reached out and initiated love. Help us to believe it, help us to lean into it, and help us to ultimately be transformed by it. That in, in seeing the love that you've given us, we would be people who then know how to go out and give that love to other people. We praise you and we thank you for the work that you've done and for the work that you're going to continue to do. We commit ourselves to you and um, we love you, Lord. May you go before us into our time of um, fellowship and discussion. Um, may it be honoring to you and would you just continue through your Holy Spirit to illuminate parts of our hearts and parts of our minds that we don't even understand ourselves. Um, that we would be open before you and open before the work that you want to do in us to make us more like you, Jesus. We love you and we praise you. And we pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.